Well, welcome to Grow Radio. I'm Frida Morrison, and I'm moving again and again, looking at all the jobs that have to be done for much longer. Hedges need to be trimmed. In the last cuts of grass have to be done. Plant pots need to be emptied into the compost heaps. No, that reminds me, I need to ask the heat gardener, Dave Mitchell, about compost heaps. I've got a question about woody stocks. And you are there. I'm noticing that a, a few invaders have planted themselves in the borders. Some wee willow trees are in there. They said, oh, I want here. And I need to cut back a lot, and I mean a lot of shrubs, like viburnum and maybe no shrubs, but the dogwoods are just tucking out again. <sighs> Say much today. But the jobs, you can uh, sometimes just stops us standing back and looking at fit the garden likes to show off and deliver up at this time of year. The plum trees are hanging heavy with fruit. And the apple trees this year are laden. And my pride and joy. Oh, the, the glory vine is looking robust and bony again, with the huge climbing leaves about to turn into the bonniest autumn colours you would ever like to see. And that plant has a very special memory attached to it. Rooted and sorted out for me by Willie Duncan and Tom Cleghorn. And o'er there, climbing up the back tree, is the, the golden hop, magnificent in its beautiful lime green leaves, and new producing hops. I haven't started brewing yet, but you never can. Well, Willie Duncan sadly passed away recently, and he will be sorely missed. He was a very special pal to me and many others, a constant support and the Ian that was my guide and mentor, and they only in Gerdon. Dave and me will be speaking about Willie on this programme in his memory. There was nobody like him. But, as Willie would say, <laughs> you need to get on, no hanging about. So join me in the gang, in our virtual sheds. Welcome to Scotch Radio. And welcome to the sheds. Let me introduce you to the team. Ready, willing and able to sort out your gardens with a big or small, pots, windy boxes or nothing. Just enjoy the banter and the fresh air. So, the team, the heat gardener himself, a past curator at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, Vice Chair of the National Trust for Scotland, welcome, Dave Mitchell. Hi, Frida. How are you today? I'm fine. Can I just uh, dry and out? I think after all the rain we've had up here. Have you had the same doing in Edinburgh? Ah, we've had a bit of a mix, but I think for me it's just amazing. It's September already. What's happened to the year? It's, it's been fast. Well, just busy, but it's fine to be busy, I think. You can. Oh, hi. You can't be sitting about doing nothing. It's no good for you. When did you ever sit about doing nothing? I've never done sort about doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I can somebody else is the same boat. In Embra, Ursun Sorter, and Afakin Gardner, Richie Werner, Abdi Fine, ah, Family guys. Fine, being in a garden. Are you sitting about doing nothing? I'm sitting no? about doing nothing? Aye, that'll be right. Aye. <laughs> it's awfully sorry to hear about the loss of your pal, Frida. Goodness oh, me. Oh, yeah. Willie Duncan. As I, I said, there'll be nobody like him. 
Uh, he was a grand. He was a grand fella. He was that. Oh bless! And listen, speaking about Dane, nothing I noticed in your intro. You mentioned you're about to cut the grass for the last time of the year. Do you care how many times I've cut my grass this year? No. Twice. That's it. It's not grown. It has not grown. It's been so I dry. Been just too busy for things. Uh, I know. It's just, it's burnt. I mean, that's as simple as that. There's uh-huh. hardly any grazing for the coos. And oh, it's awful. I haven't spoken to a lot of farmers yet, but they're, they're, they're harvesting. The stalks are rather short. I think that's oh, what they're saying. No. There could be a shortage of straw. But Aye. I'll just give you a quick queer thing about grass. The lawn outside our house uh-huh. was yellow a week and a half ago, and it's totally green now. Isn't that amazing? Aye. A wee bit of rain just makes it come back to life. Oh, that's See, that's, that's hardy. That's it's hardy, Dave. That's it. Hardy. Slick ourselves. <laughs> right. Now, I am very pleased to announce to the nation that our cook, the much spoken about, the one and only Claire Patterson, has returned to the fold. She is with us. She has come back. She ran off. She's come back. Welcome, Claire. Was it something we said? Hi, Frida. I will know something you said, just um, my inability to work a calendar, I think. <laughs> Sounds like you did just fine, though. Some lovely oh, recipes listen, last month. Listen, okay. listen. Uh, before we ask you to, to give us a wee snippet in your, in your menu, I can tell you that we, Richie, Dave and myself, tried hard to deputise for you in the previous episode. We are recipes. We were all right. We was, was, we, eh, lads, we were, we were, we were okay. <laughs> we got there, eh? <laughs> um, I think we, we didn't eat bad, but anyway, I even had a recipe for aubergine tahini. I'm sorry once you oh, remembered yeah. the ingredients, Frida. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you, we, we, we did all right. We called soup and eating mess and a bit of chicken thrown in the middle for good measure. <laughs> you, did grand. you did grand. You did grand. Well, my aubergine tahini sounded better than my attempt, I have to tell you, but the prize went to Richie for revealed that Fanny was Mark and Abel Jilly. He hung his jelly bag on his <laughs> drum kit stand. Ah, <laughs> oh, come on. It's a nice so, perk to be an awesome drummer. I've got sturdy scars. If that is not a sign of our times, you know, fit is. Have you not got my a mom did, stand? My like? mum didn't hear drum kit stand. That's what maybe went wrong. Uh, my jelly bag's on a brush shank, a twin two chairs tied on with a bit of tow. That's it. My nana uses her walking stick. It's brilliant. I don't even know she gets a boot when she's dripping the jelly, but I don't know. <laughs> Your grand uses are walking stick. Oh, it gets worse, right? Oh okay, Claire, give us a snippet of it in your menu in this episode. Well, Frida, got all that lovely produce coming out of the garden at the moment. So we're starting, we've got some herby crepes with slow roasted tomatoes, um, a lovely South American sort of condiment kind of salsa called pico de gallo, mm-hmm. some courgette fritters, oh. roasted kohlrabi with apple and sage, and then to finish off, some pan perdu with poached pear and brambles. Oh Different wow! Class. Oh. oh wow! Cousettes and of course tomatoes, cheapers. Yeah. Plenty of them tomatoes. about at the moment. <laughs> right. Okay. And this episode, I said, we'll be looking at fit jobs have to be done in the garden, and some of us need to be reminded. <laughs> Richie, <laughs> Richie. Uh-huh. Oh, no, <laughs> Wait for the list, say the money. Oh, I need the jobs. <laughs> the heat gardener's coming with his list. You've got to do this, that, and the next thing. When do we ever have time to do? Oh boy. Dave. It's, he's, you're going to lead us into the meadows. We were speaking about that in our sister program, Scotch Radio, with guests Wendy Barry and partner Bossy, about the new book called Meadows, the Swedish Farmer and the Scottish Cook. Now, this book, before we go into the meadows, is a fantastic archive of planting ideas and recipes for Wendy and Bossy. 
More information on our Scots Radio website, www.scotsradio.com. And Dave was keen to suggest we think about establishing something like a meadow in order to engage in, since the emphasis these days is on letting plants grow as opposed to cutting them down all the time. Now, if you get up to the wall garden at Garden Castle in Falkbirth, you can see a lovely example of what I would call a mini meadow. Grasses mixed with wild flowers, with bonny rudies cut through the grasses. But we start with questions pertaining to the garden. We've got plenty of questions pertaining to life, but we'll leave that to the other side for now. Heaps of folk have been asking about, yep, the tomatoes. They are in sorrow, near the tomatoes, but the folk. <laughs> the tomatoes are misshapen and wee, and some have got black spots at the bottom. Dave, over to you if it's happening there. Well, you've got blossom end rot. You can, that, that, that's just as simple as it, you know, and it kind of occurs when your tomatoes, maybe when they're getting started at the beginning of the year, the season's a wee bit dull, maybe a wee bit wet. You know, it's basically caused by a lack of calcium, and, you know, it can be brought on by several things, too much water, no enough water, a mix of both, a low pH in the soil. Overfeeding can also cause a problem with it and all. You know, it's basically a calcium deficiency, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't even salvage the tomatoes that have got it, their compost, basically. But you can go for it. Check your compost next year and make sure the pH is between 6.2 and 6.8, as that pH allows the plant to take in mere calcium. Then overfeed. Avoid gaining your tomatoes too much nitrogen. That's why tomato fertilizers are high in potash. And, you know, just watch the moisture levels going forward. You know, tomatoes need to be watered regular, evenly, no too much, no too little. They don't like being dried out. They're rich fussy things. Mm -hmm. They really are. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 you can get a spray that you apply onto the foliage that helps to stop it. But, you know, I, I, it's really just good culture and getting the pH right. Well, there was a cooking going on with tomatoes. I was doing the, I'm trying to freeze a few of the tomatoes so that I can use them in my pastas. Are you impressed there, Claire? Very impressed. Freezing, oh, aye. Freezing, aye, aye, aye. freezing my tomatoes, taking off the skins, mixing with some uh, onions and a wee toddy bit of, of garlic. I'm not too fond of garlic, a wee toddy, so I can use in that. Anyway, uh, Karen Bradburn has no leaves on her reed currant bush. Second year it's happened, fits happening, Dave. Well, I think it's the one we scunner called Sawfly. Right, same. And I can't, I mean, I'll tell you, there's 500 different kinds in the country. Oh. <laughs> there he gone. Oh. But thankfully, there's only a few of them that are a nuisance in the, the garden. You know, the, these wee insects are actually related to bees and wasps and, and ants. And the, their caterpillars feed on apples and gooseberries and currants. Now, I'm thinking in this case, it's most likely that the culprit is the the big common gooseberry sawfly that's pale green in colour with black spots about three quarters of an inch long. It might be the smaller pale spotted gooseberry sawfly. And if you've got it, it's actually not a bad yen to get because it only produces yin generation of caterpillars in a year. I just hope that it's no trouble itself. The small gooseberry sawfly, it's just weird caterpillars with a green head. Oh, the on deal. It produces four generations in a year. <gasps> for me, right through the end of the year. But really, it doesn't matter which one it is. As soon as it appears, you know, 
they're ferocious. They boys will strip a plant in a day if they get mm -hmm. a chance. It tucks its name after the wee organ on the bottom of the female that it uses to lay the eggs. And really the only control that you've got is to check the plants regular in the spring. And that just doesn't mean having a quick look. It means getting inside the middle of the bush, looking on the undersides of the leaves. Because that's where the wily females lay their eggs, doing at the bottom in the middle of the bush on the underside of the leaf so you can't see them. Hmm. Keep an eye on them, and as soon as you see the caterpillars appear, tuck them off with your hand. You can get a wee nematode that's sold as fruit and vegetable protection, or you can get a contact in insecticide, such as bug clear, resolve a bug killer, or provantal. But these things should really be a last resort. The best advice is here, good clean up, run about the plant this autumn. And again in the spring, get a wee feed of general fertilizer and a bit of emulsion dung if you can get it, or get garden compost through its roots, and that'll help it along. No, you were speaking about running about the plant. That's the next question I was going to ask. If it happens to the little beasties, do they go into the soil and do they survive in the soil to the next season? No, they, they, they tend not to. The eggs are quite often, the, the, the wee beast will survive over the winter on the stems of the plant if it's there and it usually gets rattled with the frost. It can get into the soil and all, but you know, generally it's not a problem. It's not one of these things, once you get it year to year, it keeps coming back, you know, it's not as bad as that. Mine does. Every single year, my gooseberry, I've yet to get it. Well, you just get oh. a good clean up, run about, and get your neb down in the middle of the bush <laughs> and about the end of March, what March here is near laying eggs when they appear. And job. and gone about, you'll just have to be gone about squishing caterpillars. You've got to be off eventually. <laughs> oh, at the beginning right. of the year. That's uh, it's one of these jobs we're looking forward to again, Richie. Put that on your list, right? right. Squishing caterpillars. That's <laughs> like cleaning your moor. Just get on That's with it. it. Oh, get he's not going to go on about cleaning moors again. Richie, do you have other fruit bushes apart from apples? Yeah, I've got a, a wee of rasps out there which have been great for showing the kids about where raspberries come from. Look, this one's ready, this one's no ready. Boom, off it comes, and it was straight in the wee one's mouth, you know. Boom. <laughs> so they've all been stripped. Uh, and I've got a wee, uh, kind of wee wild strawberry, the wee alpine. So that's right. abundant, that's just everywhere. But I kind of like it, you know, so I just let it yeah. do its thing. Brilliant. It smells like jam, the new. It's great. All right. <laughs> uh, Claire, what about your fruity bushes? Have you got uh, a lot of them up there? Aye, aye, we've got a fruit cage up here, so we've got we've got loads of black currants, way too many black currants, red currants, <laughs> oh, um, goose, gooseberries, <laughs> the, the really nice sweet red gooseberries as well, and the blueberries which are ready just now. So they're they're lovely. No raspberries, they didn't like it here for some reason. Oh. For three different gardeners, three different gardeners since they've been here have put in raspberries and they've no come to anything. Oh, so dear. that can be a question for next year. Well, <laughs> so they, they didn't like it to be too wet, Claire. Well, that'll be it. <laughs> they didn't like, like it to be too wet. Therein so. lies the rub. Right, are you ready? It gives us, ah, great pleasure and quite a lot of relief. They hate Claire back in their midst. We will never again be back to you <laughs> or mention the ferry incident <laughs> ever again. Then you almost missed the programme because you were on the ferry. It's entirely forgiven. Never again, is it? Right. Claire, give your first batch of recipes. Um, it sounds like I'm getting a bit of reputation there, Frida, but <laughs> never <laughs> for being the naughty one. Years. Anyway, never ever. <laughs> so I've been in the polytunnel this week. We've got loads of tomatoes, loads of courgettes. So here's some recipes to use them up. So starting off with my herb crepes with slow roasted tomatoes. 
And a great way if you've got a lot of tomatoes that are needing used is to slow roast them. So it intensifies the flavour and then they keep quite well in the fridge for maybe up to a week and they're great. You can stir them through pasta, put them in a tart, a quiche, frittata. But this is my favourite at the minute and it's to tuck them inside a herby crepe with a wee dollop of cream cheese or even a soft goat's cheese if you prefer that. So for the tomatoes, you half them, you remove the seeds and then you toss them in a wee bit of olive oil, salt, wee bit of thyme leaves, pop them in a baking sheet face side down and you roast them for 45 minutes at maybe 160 Celsius. At that point, just peel off the skins and very carefully, because they'll be pretty soft, flip them over onto the other side and top with a wee bit of garlic, if you like that. Um, and back into the oven for another 45 minutes. They'll still be juicy, but they'll just be a wee bit dried out and a wee bit more intense in flavour and you leave them to cool. For the crepes, just make a basic batter with four ounces plain flour, two eggs, half a pint of milk, wee bit of salt and pepper, and then a load of chopped parsley, coriander, chives, if you like tarragon, a wee bit of tarragon, and a tablespoon of melted butter. So you can do this in a bowl. If you've got a blender, chuck it all in the blender and whiz it up and it's done in about 30 seconds. Leave that to rest for 30 minutes. And then to make the crepes, you just want to pour a small amount of the batter into a hot non-stick pan that you've brushed with a wee bit more melted butter. Swirl it to coat the base. It's okay if it's a wee bit lacy at the sides because I quite like it a wee bit crispy there. Cook it for maybe a minute or two. Flip it over, cook the other side. And then when you're ready to serve, spread the crepe with a wee bit of cream cheese or goat's cheese and add a few of your slow roasted tomatoes. And it's really lovely and nice. <laughs> then <laughs> for the next tomato one, we've got a nice thing here called pico de gallo, which is a South American salsa. <laughs> Every family has their own version of it, but it's basically tomatoes, onions, coriander, lime juice, and it translates as rooster's bill in reference to the colours. So I quite like that wee fact. Mm. So you finely dice a red onion, pop it in a bowl with the juice of maybe two or three limes, really good seasoning of salt, and let that just sit. While that's sitting, you dice up five or six ripe tomatoes as finely as you can. So pretty small if you can manage it. Pop those in with the onion, big handful of chopped coriander, and you can serve that just like as a dip with your tortilla chips or your pita bread. Um, or you can have it alongside fish or alongside some grilled meat. And it's just summer in a wee bowl. <laughs> that is sounding absolutely brilliant. It's great. And then for your courgettes, because I know you've got a lot of courgettes at the minute, mm. we've got basically some courgette fritters. And the important part of this recipe is you need to squeeze as much of that liquid out as possible and to sort of fry it at medium-high heat. And those two things will mean you'll get a nice crisp fritter. So you grate a couple of courgettes, season with salt, and allow them to sit for a couple of minutes just to draw as much of that water out as you can. You pop them in a clean tea towel, and then wring it and wring it and wring it as hard as you can, get all that liquid out. Then the courgettes go into a bowl, add a beaten egg, maybe a couple of thinly sliced sibies, maybe three, four ounces of plain flour and a good twist of pepper. If you want at that point, you could add a wee bit of cheese, maybe some crumbled feta or a wee bit of grated parmesan. Mix that all together and you should have a thickish batter, which is kind of like a pancake thickness of batter. So it's not too runny. So if you need a wee bit more flour, put that in. Heat a centimetre of sunflower oil in a pan until it's sort of medium high heat. 
and then drop in tablespoons of the batter. It will sizzle as it hits the pan. Cook for a couple of minutes till it's golden on one side. Flip it over, cook it for another couple of minutes until it's golden brown and cooked through. And there you go. Oh my goodness, that sounds... You can just tell she kens that she's dying as opposed to... Well, name mentioning <gasps> another event, you know. It just is chalk and cheese. Thank you, Claire, and welcome back. It's so good to hear. Great to be here. Right. Another question for Dave. I have a bumper crop of plums. Me, right. But other folk have hardly any. And it's difficult to explain fit why that happens. What's going on, Dave? Well, it's most likely weather-related, Frida. You know, it could be a thing called biennial bairn where he get a heavy crop one year and then the following year he didn't get any. And that kind of happens in a cycle. But that usually affects apples more than plums. I think it's the weather. And what happens is, you know, folk didn't realise when a pollen grain is transferred by an insect from one flower to another, that actual pollen grain has to germinate itself. And the conditions that are required as regards temperature and humidity for that pollen grain to be able to germinate and fertilise the embryo in the ovary are very, very precise. And if it's too dry, too hot, too cold, too wet, it doesn't happen. And I think that's what's happened. The weather's been that fickle this year that some folk have had the right conditions in their microclimate for pollination and other folk have Um Hopefully things will be better next year. Okay, is it only to do with the buds in spring if they get frosted or eaten by the, the blue tits? If blue tits are eating the flowers before they're open, then obviously that'll impact on it. So, you know, that, that bullfinches can be a wee scunner for that, you know? Aye. I'm just wondering if the, if the buds are getting frosted. It's more likely to be the weather when, you know, the blossoms opened, pollen's been transferred, but it's not just quite been the right thing. The other thing, of course, that can happen is that the pollinator that you need isn't present, but that's not often the case when people have had fruit one year and then, you know, have fruit in previous years, the pollinators obviously put I put it in the weather. That's my that's my thought on it. Mm-hmm. Pollinators, bees, insects? Well, bees in it. I mean, you've plenty of bees about the place. Oh, the, be- the bees can shift the pollen, but if the weather conditions are not right for the pollen grain to germinate inside the flower, then pollination won't happen. Kenneth, just, just reminded me, this has been enough a year for wasps. Has anybody else noticed that? Ah, I'm just funny. complaining about them up here. Well, I've not seen that many this oh, year. Oh, God, they were just know? overrun the uh, wasps. No, I've not seen that many this and year. And there's more about just now, just to be warned, that they've, they've stopped getting food inside their nest, so they're coming out looking for sticky food, you know, some sugary stuff. Well, they're, they're often bad at this time of year. Aye. So they're all coming out because they're naked nothing inside the nest. The, you know, the source has stopped doing that feed. So out they come, they're swimming about our way looking for, just for food. So be on your guard. But yeah, a lot of folk have said they've never seen so many wasps this year. Next question. And again, it's, it's my inability to come to conclusions. Woody compost cuttings. Fit can I nape it in the, the, the compost? Well, you, you shouldn't be putting woody material, kind of like willow and wee twigs and stuff like that into your compost. It's no good. The only time you should maybe use some of that is when you start to make a, a proper compost heap. And I'm not just thinking about a corner where you tip it all. You know, if you actually make a compost stack where you've got, 
you know, a layer of branches about maybe the thickness of your finger on the bottom and that just keeps it up off the ground, maybe a couple of inches thick. And then you would put some leaves and stuff on top of that and then maybe uh, a, a layer of weeds and, you know, grass clippings and then another layer of weeds and grass clippings and leaves and herbaceous rubbish so that your heap's made up like a sandwich all the way mm-hmm. to the top. The only time you would put woody stems on is maybe at the very bottom of that just to help keep the air circulating through the heap. Um, the best thing to do with woody material is to, you know, put it through a chipper and then stack it and you would chip it when it's green. Or, you know, even wee bits, if they're, you know, if they're thicker than your thumb, it's worth cutting them up and letting them dry. You can I put them in a wood-burning stove. You know, some of my friends that have got a lot of willow in their garden, they actually make things out of the willow for growing plants up and mm-hmm, stuff that. like that. You know, so it just you really shouldn't put woody material in the compost heap. You know. I remember, you know, we were talking about Billy Duncan and him saying that your compost heap has to be like a cake. It's got ah, different that, that, layers. That, that's a really good. It. It's like a layered cake. You know, uh-huh. I had a garden friend that had a place called Carnell where they used a similar sort of system, but it was also based on a technique that was used in India. And they, they built their compost heap round about three or four big wooden posts. And the wooden posts had a special handle on the top of them so that once the heap was reached the top of the post, with a bit of juggling about, you could stand on top of the heap and then pull the post out. And what that did was let the air right down inside the heap. And, of course, once the oxygen and the air gets into the heap, that's what feeds the the mycelium and the bacteria and everything in there and gets things working. Oxygen and air is the engine to drive the compost heap. If you didn't want to do it that way, you should turn your heap at least twice or thrice over the course of the year. Making compost is an art, and it's good for burning off calories. (laughs) (laughs) Is he, is, he, is he referring to you and me Probably, eventually by yeah. chance? I should get a compost Jobs started. Jobs to be done, you see. Get work but that's fascinating with the poles. Ah, it was, I've only ever seen it once in that garden at Carnell and it worked very well. It's brilliant if you'd pull the poles out in the winter because it's like a steam train. You can see that on a frosty morning, you can see the, the heat coming out of the heap and the air going in. Wow. Cool. Remember we used to speak about uh, cooking tatties, um, tatties in compost heaps. You can still do that because of the heat that comes out of the, the actual compost heap. Have you ever tried doing that? <laughs> no, I've never, I've never done that, no. Yeah, Richie, have you never cooked your tatties in your compost? First time for everything, Frida. <laughs> first time for everything. Be a, fair, be a fair all heat to get hot enough to cook your tatties. If tatties, I imagine, I is that one of my um, strange imaginings that people do? Uh, I think you're fleeing in fantasy <laughs> there, like, you know. I could well be. It, this happened. I just, I'm teenured by something, you can't, I mean. Right, Mr. Dave. We can now get into our meadows. Lots of folks speaking about planting wild floors, wild floor meadows. Is that easy, Dave? Well, yeah, there are things you can do, but just before we dive into that, and it's worth just saying that when you think about meadows, there are sort of, what I would say, three main types. There's coastal meadows, such as you get in the wonderful Macher in the Western Isles, which is so rich in biodiversity. And then you have managed meadows that were kind of used traditionally for haymaking that you see on floodplains, and we tend to associate them, you know, more with the English countryside. 
And if you want to see some of these kind of meadows, you should have a look at the Coronation Meadows website, which shows you about 18 in Scotland where you can go and visit them. It's a fantastic project, really lovely thing, and you'll get a lot of inspiration from that. And then the third kind, of course, is what you've mentioned, which is where you set to to make a meadow yourself. And a meadow can be quite a good alternative to a lawn. You know, it can give you a good show for many months of the year. And basically, when it comes to making a meadow, there's two different kinds. There's what we call a perennial meadow, which does best in poor soil because the grasses compete less with the wildflowers. And then you get an annual meadow. Annual meadows tend to favour, to an extent, a wee bit of a richer soil, and therefore they're a better choice if you want to replace an existing border. Now, you should always, when you're choosing your seed, try to use a local seed merchant. You know, they'll give you the best advice about what mix is right for you and right for your soils and the climate here in Scotland. There's a company called Scotia Seeds that will do a grand job for that. They're very, very helpful. And in other parts of the country, you know, like Scotia, many of the merchants use seeds that are locally sourced. Now, but whatever you do, don't go try and do this yourself, be taking seeds for the countryside because that's detrimental to the local welfare population. And in some cases, it's even illegal. So don't go harvesting seed for the countryside to make a meadow yourself. Use a seed merchant. Sow the seed sometime between March and April. You can do it in September, depending on the soil conditions. And lighter soils, you know, autumn sowing seeds generally establish a wee bit quicker. But here in Scotland, I tend to be a wee bit more patient. You know, it's a slow burn job. Prepare the ground, leave it over the winter, and sow your seed in March and April. And as regards preparing the ground, you know, you can cover it with a black plastic sheet or a weed suppressant membrane for three months after you've rotavated prior to sowing. And if there's nasties like dockins and nettles and dandelions and things come up, you're better to dig them out. If you've got a big area, you really want a rotavator um, and just prepare the ground as you would for a new, you know, a new lawn. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whatever you do, dinny pit manure or fertilizer into it because that'll make the grass grow vigorously. And then, of course, the grass chokes out the wildflower seeds. When it comes to actually physically sowing the seed, I like to do it by hand broadcasting at about Oh, about quarter of an ounce to five square yards or a gram to a square meter roughly. Now, wildflower seeds off a wee, it's difficult to see. So I always put it in with proper, and I mean proper silver sand. You mix the two together so that you can handle it easier and you can see where it's gone when it hits the ground. And when you're starting to sow it, if you imagine a square, walk across it from top to bottom and then left to right. So you sow the ground twice. Go in one direction first, and then go in the second direction. And that'll give you a really good cover. Get a gentle rake, or if you've got a roller, roll it in, and then put a sprinkler on it, and leave it alone. That's it. That's you, you're done. Just go away, turn your back on it, and forget it for two or three weeks. After that, you maybe start to see a few unwanted weeds coming up. If you see them, pull them out, if there's big clumps of couch grass or something like that appear, get that hoiked out. And going forward, your new meadow, you need to cut it to about two inches every six to eight weeks for the first two or three months of the summer. And after that, 
you know, you can go forward with a light cut in the spring to about three inches in April. Then go after after April, or you'll cut the floors down. Your main cut's going to be in August. And some folk like just to get a wee light cut in November. But always remember, when you're cutting your meadow, leave the clippings on the ground for, uh, I think, four or five days. That just puts a wee bit of nutrient back into the ground. Also, if there's seeds present, especially in that autumn cut, it allows them to fall out of the flowers and be into the ground. And whatever you do, then you be tempted to feed your meadow at any time. Just, just leave it be. It'll do its own things. It'll be quite happy and settled down. And if you want to know more about meadows, there is another kind, which is Meadows of the Mind. And we spoke about them in the last Scots radio programme, and they celebrated meadows in relation to literature, art, music, and poetry. Some of that stuff going way back to the Middle Ages. Meadows are integral to our lives. They're wonderful things. They have the experience of lying on your back in a meadow and watching the clouds scurry over the sky is one of the wee moments in life that touches your soul. And no matter how old you are, it makes you feel like a bairn again. Dave, you know this, over the years I've listened to your instructions in gardening and jobs, etc. That was one of the classics of all time, your explanation how to make a meadow. That is a piece of art. Thank you very, very mm -hmm. much indeed. We are kind. lucky to have you. You and Claire. You're off a kind. Me and Richie, on behalf of me and Richie, who are humble people, oh, uh, we are lucky to have Claire indeed with us. <laughs> Richie, big yeah. time. Big Definitely. Time. Oh, yeah. But that was really, really a lovely explanation. One question silver sand for them, it doesn't against it, is it? It's just a really, really, really fine sand. It's almost like flour and it's white in colour. You'll see it in the garden centre in wee bags or you can buy it online. You don't need a lot to sow a meadow, kilogram. Uh -huh. Another question is, just just so that we can exactly, when do we actually rotivate? In spring, just like you would do in normal springtime? Well, if I, if I was setting to make a meadow in Scotland, I would probably clear the ground and rotivate it in the, you know, sort of like November, and I would let it sit there over the winter, and then I'd maybe get a wee rotivate again in February, and if there's weeds in it, you might, you know, you give it a chance to clean them out before mm -hmm. you would rake it and sow it and I would I would say, yeah, in, in, in April, you know, generally here. It really depends east, west, north, south, you know, just where you are, but early spring. I see a lot of folks think it's easy to grow wildflowers. It's nay. I have yeah. tried. No, you've got uh, to prepare. The preparation is absolutely crucial. Well, you know, it, it's like lawns, Frida. A lot of folks think, oh, I could just put a lawn in. A lawn's hard work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think of any other plant that you cut the heat off it every week and folk are running over the top of it, stamping, jumping, the dogs running on it, <laughs> that, you know, they're doing all sorts of things on it, and you expect it to grow and look nice. A nice lawn is hard work, very hard Absolutely. work. Ask any greenkeeper, they'll tell you. Now, some folk might think that they're hearing a lot of creaking going on. It's not my bones. For some reason, my old chair in the shed is creaking very badly today, so I apologise to Abbey. <laughs> I've got a creaky, a creaky chair, creaky chair. Is it coming across over loud? Don't be complaining yet about my creaky it chair. It is what no? it is. It is what it is. <laughs> it's a creaky chair. Maybe save up for a new chair one of these days. <laughs> now, we're loping through the season again. Signs of frost in the morning, folks. Is it time for hot food yet, Claire? Fits in your menu. 
I think it is time for hot food, Frida. It's definitely a turn in the weather, isn't there? It's just right. going that bit more autumnal. Mm. So here I've got I've got roasted kohlrabi with apple and sage. We've had brilliant kohlrabi this year, and it's I, I love it. Usually I like it just grated raw on a salad, but like I say, it's now a wee bit more autumnal, so it's time for for something a wee bit heartier. So I'd peel the kohlrabi. I always find if you cut them in half first, they're way easier to peel because if you try and peel them while they're mm-hmm. entire, you just can't get rid of them. <laughs> so you peel your kohlrabi, cut them into maybe chunks of about an inch each, toss out a wee bit of olive oil and salt, roast 30 minutes or until they're tender. About halfway through the cooking, you want to pop some chopped eating apples into the pan. So you can peel them if you like, but you didn't have to. And once that kohlrabi and the apples are tender and they're ready to serve, you can sprinkle over a bit of fresh sage or just to elevate it a wee bit, you can just frizzle a few of those sage leaves and a wee bit of oil till they're crispy and just sprinkle them on top so they kind of melt in the mouth and they just add like a lovely a lovely flavour to that kohlrabi and the apple. And that's a great side dish for things like pork, perfect with it. And then I've got a pudding for you, which is pan perdue with poached pears and brambles. Now, last time I was on, I was a wee bit rude about summer pudding, I think. So <gasps> so, I, 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 so I, I had a good think and I was thinking, there has to be a bread pudding that I like because I'm, I'm really no a fan. Anyway, this is something I do like and I think it's delicious. So pan perdue, you can call it French toast or eggy bread. Oh, you can make it a wee bit more special with a bit of the sort of compote of seasonal fruit. So for the fruit, I'd make a syrup from maybe four ounces castor sugar, Similar volume of water and a few aromatics. Cardamom pods are great with pears, cloves, maybe a cinnamon stick, a few coriander seeds, all these, star anise, whatever takes your fancy. Just simmer that for a couple of minutes till it forms a syrup. And then add chunks of peeled and cored pears and cook them until they're tender. Take it off the heat and then add in a few good handfuls of your brambles that if you're like me, you've had your children diligently picking out the hedgerows for you mm-hmm. <laughs> for the pan perdue whisk two eggs with a quarter pint of whole milk and a tablespoon of maple syrup or honey soak slices of bread if you want to be fancy you can use brioche if it's for a special treat but bread's fine soak slices of bread in that mixture and then fry it in butter for a couple of minutes per side until it's golden and it's puffed up serve that topped with an extra drizzle of maple syrup or a wee drizzle of honey some of your poached fruit and a sprinkle of toasted almonds, because almonds and pears are delicious together. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Mm, indulgent. Uh, I'm oh salivating. Yeah. I know. <laughs> just, it just makes you feel... Why can't we just I'm gearing up bread pudding for fancy French things. That's it. You can see, uh, there's a way to use up your leftover breeds without having to do a, do a summer pudding. <laughs> Pam I tell you what, no one of your bairns are keen to go and pick brambles. <laughs> they didn't bring them home. They didn't bring them home. <laughs> they eat them. They're, they're, te- they're terrible. Same with cucumbers, same with tomatoes. Nothing makes it home. <laughs> it's all half eaten. <laughs> Ken, Ken, you know, we're speaking about climate change a lot and different signs of climate change. Something else occurred to me. Uh, I haven't seen any hedgehogs for a long, long time. And I'm out in the countryside. MD, MD, seen any hedgehogs on about? Well, I'll give you a funny wee story. About a funny wee hedgehogs. story. Here we go. Story. About a month ago, Mr. Lowry, your skinny whippet, why you can, was out in the back garden and he was just getting a bit of kind of cheeky with himself and dancing about in my plures. 
<laughs> Come out of that, you. What did he at? And here I went out and I looked, and here's a hedgehog. Oh, aye. Just walking across the path, and Lowry wasn't very sure about it, and the hedgehog just wasn't that bothered about him. So I got Lowry inside, and I've seen the hedgehog three or four times in the last month. Well, He's just decided to come wandering about through my garden. And I mean, if you look at, there's an off new naturalist book on hedgehogs. They have quite a big territory, and they follow the same path quite regularly at night, and they change their roots. And of course, they'd love my garden, because there's, there's a wee of snails in my garden and slugs. Hmm. and some of the shady nookie crannies, and that's what will bring them in here. So he's welcome in my garden to keep their rascals doing. Well, I never. You see, as far as I can remember, this is the time when they give birth, and you get little baby hoglets, little baby hoji-heggies. Uh, I think I'm right in, in assuming that this is for the, they have baby baby hedgehogs. So keep a lookout for them. It's funny, I just haven't seen them. Mind you, I didn't hear a lot of slugs. A lot of birds are, but near a lot of slugs. Oh, no, why? The price of fuel is, according to some reports, going to mean farmers will maybe planting or harvesting as much food. Now, that will pick the price of food up again, and that's for the garden comes in and learning to grow rain food. It maybe doesn't answer the hail problem, but it may just makes some difference. So, Dave, plan for the next few months. Fit can folk grow in the gardens or allotments. Well, you know, apart from the usual suspects like cabbage and kale and Brussels sprouts and leeks and parsnips, which all should really be in the ground by now, it is getting a wee bit of mere limiting this far north to sow things. But there's still things that you can put in the ground and try over winter in for them to mature next spring. Winter lettuce, like Webb's Wonderful, does wheel under a fleece, broad bean, Valencia, if you're wanting garlic, now's the time of year to get your garlic in for next year. Peas like Meteor will day fine and Deuce Provence. And there's even a radish called Salito. And some folk like to overwinter their onion sets in the ground as well. But, you know, you, you've got to keep the, the creators off them, as it were. The other thing that I like, you know, dead simple. Don't mock it, you know. Micro-veg on the windowsill. I've got a couple of three wee black plastic trays. They're only half size. You put a bit of capillary matting in the bottom. You make it wet. You put your micro seed on it. You get lots of different kinds. You sow it every 10 days and bang, up it comes. You get this fantastic crop of salad that's not just for garnishing. It's brilliant in scrambled eggs. It's great with a cheese omelette. You can augment a salad with it. I've also got a wee basil called Aristotle. Ah, Dawn thinks just wonderful. It grows on the kitchen windowsill, pots of parsley. Getting back to mere practical stuff, if you did sow some spring cabbages last month, now's the time to plant them out. This makes me think back to when I was a lot younger, and I used to be able to go, no to that garden centre, the local nursery, where the nurseryman was growing these things, and you wanted even stuff like cabbage and kale and Brussels sprouts and stuff to put in the ground. Now, you could go to the nursery and buy it, and it wasn't all in wee plastic trays. You just go down the, the allotment, dig them up and give it to you. But that's another thing. If you're working on an allotment, talk to your chums on the allotment, find out who's got what. There's say somebody got a wee bit of something spare. 
the other thing that you can do just now is look after the ground. You need to look after the soil. Soil is the engine of life. I remember Bossa was speaking about that in Scots Radio. Mm -hmm. We forget just how important soil is. Well, so soil's a wonderful thing. It's you know the biggest engines of life. And if you want to put something back into the soil, now's the time to sow green manures such as crimson clover because that adds nitrogen to the soil naturally. And then when you dig it in, it also conserves nutrients and improves the texture of the soil. So if I had anything, one thing that I could grow over the winter regularly, that would be my micro-veg. No, on that note, Dev, micro-seed. What do you mean by micro-seed? Do you go into a garden centre and say, can I get some micro-seed? Oh, if you go in the garden centre and you just look, there's loads of bit stuff on the rack for you know different kinds of cress and different kinds of seeds that you can eat and germinate. There's a whole range of things. We, we, we could do a whole piece on that, you know. There's a company called King's Seed that has a very nice catalogue with a lot in them. Marshalls have a lot in their catalogue. You know, it's great fun. It's great for the kids. Give it a go. Give it a go. Uh, Richie, you were telling yeah. about your uh, experience with courgettes and peas in the shop. Tell us that oh, story yeah. again. Oh, it wasn't quite the shop. It was at the school. The school. Uh, so there's this quite cool initiative. I think it's replicated up and down the country. Where on a Friday afternoon, there's it's almost like it's almost like a food bank, I suppose, where they've got a lot of stuff to to hand out to families, and it's all lovely fresh produce, and off you go. However. There was a bit of a mystery as to what there was that time a couple of Fridays ago. A couple of big cases of big yelly things was how they were described. <laughs> the lassie actually thought they were plantain. I sort of took one look at it and looked at the top of it and went, it's surely got to be a courgette. Right enough, it was a big, beautiful yellow zephyr courgette. But no one kept what they were, so they'd all been left, and I was one of the last in at the place to have a wee look about, you know. So uh, I took four or five, and the rest of them just went in the bin, sadly. Wow. And they had peas in the pod as well. Sadly, the lassie thought they were green beans, but there you go, I showed well, her what was inside. <laughs> it's a start. It, that, that lassie will, will know now, you know, she'll know now that that's courgettes and peas. Amazing. She started with education again that, that uh, Wendy Barry was speaking about. Oh, aye. Claire, as our esteemed cook, what do you grow for the kitchen over the winter months? Uh, I mean, not, nothing too exciting, I have to say. I mean, the usual, so there's there's leeks, there's, um, there's parsnips, there's Brussels sprouts, there's some of the red Brussels sprouts. I like I like the idea of the microgreens. I've done that before. I've I've been known to do it with the leftover veg seeds as well, the sort of broccoli and carrots and things that we haven't used over the year. Sometimes just start them off and use them as a kind of a microgreen rather than um than growing them for for the for a proper harvest. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but I have to be honest and say everything kind of quietens down a wee bit here. The gardener gets ready for you know for the next year and 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 we quiet down at work so mm -hmm. the polytunnel's no well used over the winter we, sh we should probably do more with it <laughs> talking about extended sort of salad leaves and things claire have you tried sowing beetroot late and using the young beetroot leaves in your salads in the winter um i, I haven't but well i do use the beetroot leaves you know when um Aye. when they're there because they're they're so nice but uh, yeah it's a great idea ruin it for the leaf just when you were saying that then now it made me think i've got some beetroot seed yeah. left you know i bet that would germinate quick on the kitchen mm. windowsill and then you just get a haircut yeah. and put it in a salad i don't like the sound of this i'm gonna hear bash keep the mice off them because the, the the mice are dead keen on their beetroot so you, oh you rarely find one with a wee nibble taken out of it. Oh, <laughs> it it germinates pretty quick so you know on a cool kitchen Aye. windowsill or a cool windowsill in another room in the house, I reckon it would come up within, you know, two or three weeks. You'd Aye. get a flush of leaves, whack it off. That would look dandy in an omelette. I would. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that, Dave. Thank you. 
Thank you, folks. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I have a huge crop of apples this year, and Willie Duncan will be proud of me. Gerners Alice Scotland will claim the name Willie Duncan through Fife, and as I said earlier, we were saddened to hear the news that Willie had passed away. And every apple I've planted, he recommended. Katie, Hellgate Wonder, Golden Spires, James Grieve, of course, and many others. He looked over my park at the back, between the hoose and the wee widdy, and he said, that's far you need to hear your orchard. It's got shelter in there. Never thought about that bit. And I have gone as far as put up my fences and my gates, and the time is just about right new for planting some mere apples for Willie. He recommended James Grieve for my climate, but uh, I wanted to ask about mere varieties. There was there was nobody can't mere about apples and Willie. Right, Dave, more memories you had a lot to deal with with Willie over the years. Ah, Willie was just a very special person. He, he was one of the most generous human beings I've ever known. Yep. He had a, a gentle nature, a wise head, and a very practical approach to things. And he, he, he just shared life with everybody, you know. He, he was a remarkable man. And I, I remember once wanting to plant an orchard and going to speak to him. And, you know, I spent a whole day with him going around his garden and looking at all sorts of other plants. And, you know, he's known for his love of apples, but he also had a great love and interest in ferns. And he, he, he was keen on mechanopsis. And, oh, there's just so many tales. And I can always remember him when we used to do judging at Gardening Scotland. And, you know, judging's a, oh, judging's a challenging thing. But Willie's approach to judging was, you weren't there to judge, you were there to encourage you were there to grow folk, and that's what Willie did mm-hmm. all his life. Everybody that he touched, he grew them a wee bit. He gave them something that would help them grow themselves. Uh, I, I will. I wish I had known him better, Frida, and I will miss him. Oh, many of the time sitting with Willie in his shed, just after he'd harvested all the apples and they're all laid out in lines and all the names of them, and I've got photographs I must look out and publish quite soon because... It was a show that he just never seen, never seen that often, probably never see again, the amount of varieties. And the, I'm thinking about all the flowers. You mentioned the, the Mechanopsis, of course, the blue poppy. There's a Willie Duncan variety named after Willie, of course. And uh, I remember he gave me the the Fritillaria. He was half a fond of Fritillaria in the Easter time. It must have been about Easter time when I was in seeing him. And it was him that told me that it was the, the Father and the Son, the Holy Ghost and the Leaves. And every time I see this coming up in my green nose to fit a lady that got through Willie, you know, I remember, see the leaves? And I pointed out to the wee bear and say, that's the Holy Ghost, that's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And it's, it's the Easter flower. And he, he also uh, showed me how to, to cut cyan wood to graft and, onto apples. You've come across this, of course, as, as well, Dave, cutting cyan. Oh, aye, yeah, no, you know, cutting signs and using it to do a saddle graft. And, you know, that would be a process that was an everyday thing to Willie. But a lot of gardeners haven't done grafting and a lot of gardeners aren't trained to do it now either, sadly. Yeah, it's a skilled job, but, you know, with a bit of practice, it's easy to do. And for Willie, it would just be as natural as pruning roses, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I think I was telling you about when I arrived, he was going to tell me and show me how to do the sign cutting. If my memory serves me correct, he dug up a bundle, say, under a tree, and it was a bundle of the patterns that he was going to use. And you said he'd never seen that being done, but you'd heard of it being done. 
Well, it's not something that I've seen being done, um, but I do know that it was done, and there is lots of historical writing about it being done. And what happens is when you've got the cyan wood on the plant, that's the, the variety that you want to transfer onto a new rootstock, you need to get that wood ready before the sap starts to rise. So in order to do that, people sometimes used to gather their signs early and, you know, you can store them. Well, my generation would have stored them in the fridge for two or three weeks, you know, in a plastic bag, maybe with a wee bit moss in them so that you've got them off the plant before the sap starts to rise. Now, Willie's generation, well, they didn't have fridges in the days. What they did was they cut the signs and they put them in a probably in a bit of hessian sack and rolled them round about and put them in a wee trench in a bit of sandy soil and they would leave them there and then when they were ready to actually graft onto the rootstock mm -hmm. um, at the right time when the weather was a wee bit warmer then they would dig the signs up and use them at that time. I, they, were, they were wrapped in hessian sacking, absolutely right, I remember that. And uh, it, it was just a, a momentous, a very memorable well, day. I, I think that's what makes me think you know, there's, there's a, a, a friend of mine, George Anderson, and he's often said that, you know, you need to be at Nelly's Elby. You know, that's where you learn, at Nelly's Elby. Yeah. Willie was Nelly's Elbow. Aye. What knowledge has passed with Willie that my generation doesn't know and the generations that are coming after me? But that's the same in a lot of trades and a lot of skills, like mm -hmm. cabinet makers and um, stonemasons and you know, French polishers and all sorts of things. You know, the generation that passes takes mm -hmm. knowledge with it. And it's the responsibility of the generation that's here to gather and keep as much of that knowledge as you mm -hmm. can, you know, so that it can be passed on. Uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got from my father was when men are working to watch what they're doing. Denny get in the road, watch what they're doing, and ask intelligent questions. It does help when you ask intelligent questions. But you can, I just remember him standing out here in, in the wall garden, and he was, I think I explained when we were talking about wall gardens, I thought it was just a bonny shaped wall where it comes through a 12 foot and then it comes down into a bonny different level. And then it goes down for that with, with roundy stones going into a different level and into the smallest level. And I said, it's a bonny shape. And he said, aye, but this <laughs> folk didn't just mark things for bonniness in them days. They made it for practical reasons. Asked to let the frost out, Frida. And he had this knowledge, deep knowledge about having it. He, he could tell that this, this was something else. And he would go, I said, right, here's my, here's my garden. It's about an acre, will it? How do I plant it out? How do I design it? And he says, Frida, just watch the sun and follow your nose. <laughs> I thought, well, that's going to help. And he was so right. It was absolutely, things didn't work if they didn't do that. And the one garden just revolted and kind of said, no, I'm not hearing that there. Do it, you haven't planted that there. So he was so right, just follow your nose. Well, Richie, uh, Claire, you'd have loved to meet Willie. And, oh, and Abedi just enjoyed his company again. But he was very, very special. And uh, I have a, a fiddle, the Severn fiddle that he'd sent up to me. A friend of his made it. It's a triangular fiddle that apparently is made by a man, or designed by a man called Severn, that he got the best melody and the best tone out of. And I still have that triangular fiddle yet. I need to kind of wire it up and get playing again for Willie. 
And of course, he was very, very fond of music, and he would often send me up CDs that we use and I've used many times in Scotch radio when we play the tracks of music. And he loved the dance band music, and he said, "Play this and this is a good and this dance band pals of mine, half half a good." And he said, "You've got to go do and see Tom Cleghorn's Gerdon and his Dahlias. They're just absolutely splendid." Tom, I will be doing as soon as I possibly can. But here's the way, and he will remain with us in our Gerdons. And the fondest, the happiest memories. Here's to the legend that is Willie Duncan. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the I Know This episode and the I Know This series. But don't worry, we're not gone for a while. We will be wee out in Scotch radio and heading for a few super bumper episodes as befits the season. And of course, we will be guiding you through some of the getter seasons as well. That's on www.scotchradio.com. And of course, this scene is www.growradio.com. So, on behalf of the team, Dave Mitchell, Richie Werner, Claire Patterson, and myself, Frida Morrison, enjoy your garden. Bye, the new. See you later.